Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Hello everybody! Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. Um, Are we recording, Harv? I always should check that. Yes, good. Right. Well, Stand Up Tragedy tonight is about tragic summer. That's the general feel of the night. And it's a nice sunny day for our tragedy tonight, which is good. Uh, Because tragic spring did not feel very springy. Uh, So I'm glad that Tragic Summer at least has the sunshine with it. Right, what is stand-up tragedy? Well, stand-up tragedy is a night where people stand up on stage and they do tragedy. Uh, So it's as simple as that. We invite performers from all parts of the arts to get up and do some tragedy. So we want to make you cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry. So expect to feel lots of different emotions tonight. Not all funny, not all sad, um, and be and expect also to hear tragedy on stage, which means that there will be sad things talked about, and so that's something to be aware of. Um, I don't know what those sad things are going to be, because uh, it's a variety night. I book really good acts, but I don't know what those acts are going to do. So I don't know where we're going to go. We could go really dark, we have done in the past, um, and we could go really light all night, who knows? Uh, that's the exciting thing about doing a variety night. But that's the thing, you, you need to remember that it's going to be tragic because tonight is a safe space to talk about unsafe things. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, and Stand Up Tragedy, we're a live night. Uh, we're also a podcast, so you'll be able to listen to what we do on stage uh, for you know over the next few weeks. They come out every two weeks at the moment. Um, and then you can tell your friends to listen to the tragedy if you've enjoyed it. Uh, and if you haven't, then I guess don't. Uh, simple as that. Um, So yes, so we're going to have three acts of tragedy linked around the theme of tragic summer. So we've got the first act is going to be tragic holidays. Then we've got the second act, which is guest curated and hosted by Alice Bell. And that's going to be our second edition of Tragic Climate. And uh, I tell you what, when we did it the first time, tragic death was a relief. Uh, The third act was tragic death. And we were like, thank God we're talking about death because that's so much less depressing than climate change. Trust me, (laughs) prepare yourselves for that. Uh, And then the third act is going to be tragic leisure. So that's the the themes, that's what's coming up. Uh, And each act will be a a separate podcast. So this is the first act of stand-up tragedy that we're now in. We've stepped into it seamlessly. Um, And it is tragic holidays. So when I think of tragic holidays, I always think about Christmas, uh, but that is uh, entirely wrong for this season. So luckily, you're uh, spared my my Christmas tragedies, which are many and very sad. Um, So well done for that. And we've got some other tragic holidays to share with you. So our first performer sharing their tragic holiday stuff with you. Uh, She recently won the Arts and Culture Award at the Asian Woman of Achievement 2015. Uh, She produces and hosts the amazing storytelling show Immigrant Diaries and is taking her new show Shallow Halal to the Edinburgh Festival this year. Put your hands together for Sajila Kashi! Thank you. Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, that's really nice. I hate it when people build me up because then it's like, well, she's going to be good. And then, it, oh, she was a bit shit, really. She's won all those awards. What she won those awards for? Hello, hello, how are you? Good. It's really lovely to be back here. I was here last time and I love doing this show. Um, uh, now, 
Okay, so my story is around a holiday, uh, but I just want to say, um, try and set the scene. So I come on stage and I tell people, I say, look, because um, I, I wasn't born here, I was born in Pakistan, and in my family we've had lots of incidents, I think you call them, kidnappings, uh, hostage situations, um, an uncle who's a journalist got arrested for his beliefs, or you know, his views against the government. Um, so this is kind of normal. And then look at the audience like you, and you just look at me like, no, it's not normal, Sajila. And I realise it's not. So we've had a few incidents like that. And um, before I get to the main story, I have to tell you, um, I went on holiday a few years ago. And before that holiday, I, I was thinking about terrorists and how incompetent they actually are. Uh, and one of my uncles had been uh, kidnapped uh, by the Taliban. I say the Taliban. Uh, what happened was the Taliban were too busy causing atrocities, suppressing women and causing nasty, nasty shit to actually do it themselves. They sourced the work out. Um, I don't know, jihadist or rasta. I don't know, some local group. They sourced it out. They got my uncle and um, they kidnapped him. There's a long story. There's another separate story which isn't relevant here. Should I tell Tell it, I don't know. Okay, all right, do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay, all right, all right, so because this isn't the main story, but anyway, so my uncle gets kidnapped, right? So um, now they, he, the, the terrorists are really incompetent because this whole idea that terrorists are really clever, they're not, they're really stupid, ignorant people. Four Lions is kind of where it's at. They are really pathetic. Um, so they phone up, they leave messages on the answer machine because I can't get hold of them. Hello, yes, um, we have Shahid, we want one million rupees, pay up or else we kill him. And somehow six or seven messages collect together and they get deleted by one of my cousins, right? So they never get, and they get a bit pissed off now. Then they phone up my aunt's cooking and she answers the phone. He goes, hello, yes, we, we have Shahid. We're going to kill him, give us one minute. She goes, I don't do cold calls. And she puts the phone down, right? <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, this is appalling. So then out of desperation, they're getting really frustrated. They write a letter, which is really badly spelt. And it just says, P.S., um, we've left you a few messages. I don't know if you deleted them or not. It was just like, what? Oh, Jesus. So I asked my family, I said, why the hell did you not do anything? I said, well, oh, come on, Sajil, it was Eve. You know, it's like, oh, Christmas. We were so busy. We didn't even notice he was missing. I was like, wow. Anyway, um, my uncle, who was a journalist who has been arrested, he's got some contact. They asked the police and the police said, yes, we can do something, but long as you give us one million rupees because they wanted like you know bakshis they wanted like a um a, a bribe so we were like well okay we're just going to do this ourselves and my uncle contacts his media friends there's a big media campaign in in karachi and um now this weird thing what is it with terrorists they seem to be really stupid but quite hot on modern technology they've got wi-fi they've got tv so now they've seen the campaign oh shit oh shit oh my god oh my god they know where we are what should we do should we kill him no 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 let's not kill him and my uncle's going no no no, no don't kill me don't kill me don't kill me I mean, you know. Anyway, th there's a big shootout. He's taken back. We we got to him. He has been, and they've let them go because that's the police. That's that's what they do. They've let him go. But my uncle, he's bruised up, so clearly he's been tortured. But it's really weird because he's put on so much weight in two weeks. He's really fat. And we're like, what's going on? He goes, oh my God, they were such good cooks. And I was like, what? He goes, they were really good cooks, right? And he goes, they used to beat him, not because like, we're not gonna get the money, then we're gonna hit, hit you. They'd be like, so did you, did you like Abdullah's biryani better than my korma today, huh? You did? And then hit him. It was like some kind of bizarre kind of, I don't know, um, uh, oh, oh, what's the, what's the thing? I can't remember, but, uh, hmm? Master Chef, that is what I was going to say, but I was meaning like more like Hansel and Gretel. You know, Hansel and Gretel, they feed him up. Yeah, it was like that, but it was, it was like a Taliban Master Chef. And it just got me thinking that maybe they are frustrated chefs. Maybe they want to do other things. Maybe they want to be Billy Elliot. Maybe they want to do jazz hands and perform. So I write this sketch, like where they're actually performers and they do jazz hands and like, hey, let everybody sing. We get the whole audience singing, jihadi hadi, jihadi hadi, make a bomb, make a bomb, right? I write this down. 
I'm about to go to Edinburgh, but I go on holiday before I go to Edinburgh with my brother and my son. And we're at this, we're in Orlando, and we get to the airport, and we say, oh, you know, we're brown, they're going to stop us, Kelsapri's, and they're really sinister Americans. Have you any Americans in the house? Yeah, hi there, yes, all smiley, smiley faces, have you a nice day, ma'am? And you know, you know that they're stopping us, but they've been really nice about it, right? Uh, have you got anything? No, no, we haven't. I thought, they're never going to go through our luggage. They do go through our luggage. They're never going to find my notebook, surely, right? They've got the notebook. It's like they've got fucking sniffer dogs for words, right? No, they're never going to open that page. <gasps> and there he is. Okay, ma'am, can you explain this to me? Jihadi Hadi. Jihadi Hadi, make a bomb, make a bomb. Jihadi Hadi, can you explain, ma'am? And I was going to, oh, look, 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 a funny story, right? Funny story. I'm a comedian. I know, I know, I know. I, I, it's, a, it's a song I wrote. So you chant this. No, 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 no. It's not, I'm not going to little terrorist cell. Oops, did I say the word terrorist? And I was like, go Google my name. It's, it's me. It's okay. They Google my name, they find out who I am, we get let off, and that's fine. All right? So the, these incidents kind of are quite common. So I'm going to tell you about the one that happened with me. It's 1996, and I go to Pakistan. I'm three months pregnant, and uh, I'm gone for a wedding. And I'm in Karachi, and I'm sleeping in the lounge because it's really hot, and it's the coolest room in the house. There's a fan just above me. And I hear all this commotion, um, and I think, oh, what's going on? I hear cup breaking, and my grandmother's sort of screaming, and I thought, oh, you know, use your sort of hustle and bustle. And I wake up, and there's a man standing in the doorway. And I think, oh, well, I've got loads of uncles. He must be another uncle. And he says, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. As he's doing this... Like, uncles waved a gun at me. Should they carry guns here? It's like, okay. I kind of sort of go back, I'm half, del you know, delirious. And then I hear more screaming, and he comes back and comes right at me, goes, get up, get up. And he's pointing the gun. I was like, okay, this uncle's really serious, and he's got an attitude problem, right? We need to talk about my mom, to my mum about this. Um, he goes, get up, get up. And he sees my ring on my finger, like my wedding ring and my engagement ring. And as he's pulling it up, um, He's pulling it off the ring, and he pulls me up. I'm towering above him. I'm being held at gunpoint by a hobbit terrorist. <laughs> it's really... So he's like really angry, gets, puts the gun in my back. Get up, get up, move, move. I'm really conscious that I'm pregnant now. I'm feeling a bit nauseous. And uh, we go into the room, and my, my mum's there with all the families, about eight, nine members of our family there. And my mum goes, oh, thank God you're here, Sajila. Like, you know, it's an everyday occurrence. Every, I haven't gone shopping, mum. What the fuck's going on? There's two men with guns here. What's going on? She goes, Sajila, tell them, tell them. You know when I get nervous, I have to go for a shit. Right? They won't let me go for the shit. It's like, this is really surreal. This is really surreal, right? We, we, there's two men with guns. We haven't addressed this. You want, you are really getting my head in. You want to go for a... She goes, listen, listen to the gunman. Like, there's two guys. There's, I'd call them good cop, bad cop. So the bad one is the one that's got the gun to me, right? The other one's a little bit sort of weak. He's got his hands trembling. He's a bit worried, right? So she goes to the worried one. She goes, look, look, you look like a decent man. They're not decent men. They've got fucking guns to us, right? She goes, you know, you know when people get nervous, you have to... I have to go to the toilet. Can I just have two minutes? I go, and then I come back, and we can continue, Yes. What? What? There are no bloody, there are no tea breaks in a hostage situation, mother. There are no toilet breaks. This is not how it works. Anyway, um, uh, they do what my mother says, and they lock us all, eight of us, into the smallest room in the house, which happens to be the toilet. It's got no windows, no aircon. And my mum, true to word, we're all packed in there like sardines like this, you know. And true to word, she goes, I really have to go, get out of the way, get out of the way. And she's pushing past us, and we're just literally like sardines. And she goes, and it's one of those, have you ever seen, have you, do you know what a dry toilet is? So it's like a hole in the ground, right? So it's a hole in the ground. So we try and give as much dignity as possible, which is really, by the way, if you've got arthritis, you're fucked. You cannot use those, right? 
I, I, yeah, no, no, see, the man there, he knows what I'm talking about, right? So she goes, and it's like platoon, right? <laughs> it is, and it's, and it's, it, it's, there's no windows. Remember this, there's no windows, there's no aircon, nothing, right? And it hits us, and, and, and together with the, the awfulness of the situation. It's foul, it's horrible. She's embarrassed, because I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have eaten those lentils last night. And I, it's really awful. But we all burst out laughing. It's this nervous laughter. Anyway, the gunmen are outside, and they're like, what are you laughing about? This is not funny. And they're really angry. So we're not laughing. We're not laughing. And it's just hysteria takes over. Anyway, they open the door, and they pull one of my uncles out. He's about my age. And I think, oh shit, because we've heard these stories where these same, it's the organization called the MQM, right? And they've ticked down one member of the family and they always kill one member so that they don't go and report them because it's like a threat. So like my grandmother's going, that's it. He's gone, he's gone. And we're all like shitting ourselves down thinking, oh my God, he's going to die. I'm thinking, I don't really like him that much anyway. So it's, you know, but if you have to, you know, you have to sacrifice someone, he can be the one. Um, <laughs> we hear this thud, right? I thought, shit, something's bad's happened. And then the door opens and they push him back in. He's bleeding. What they've done is banged him around the head uh, with the back of the gun and he's bleeding and there's no room for him to fall. And my grandmother does something really quite bizarre. She grabs hold of him in and she slaps him. You stupid idiot! Does it look like there's any room in this toilet? Does it stand up? And he's like kind of bewildered. <laughs> and then <laughs> we're sitting down in there and we don't know what to do. And so I remember what I've done. Uh, when they're pulling all the gold and stuff off us, uh, taking all our money and our jewellery, I had these set of bangles that my in-laws had given me and I'd pushed them right up to my sleeve. So I said, look, can you pass me that cold cream over there? And I've always been known for my skincare. And my grandmother's, even now, you're worried about your bloody spots, right? <laughs> so he passed me the cream and I take the bangles off and I put them there. And everybody just goes, oh, like a eureka moment. And everyone's been storing contraband. There's rings coming out, there's chandeliers coming out of bras, you know. Everyone's got stuff that they're putting in there. We're in there for all for the next day, till the next day. And uh, then we realised perhaps we should try and escape because we haven't heard them for a while. And um, my uncle, who's been bashed around the head, he's been told he's got to now get us out. And he goes, what can I do? What can I do? And my, my grandmother's going, I educated you for what? Huh? What, what, what did you go and get an education for? This got absolutely useless. You're useless. She's berating him. Um, somehow we managed to break the lock. Like we're trying to pull the door and we got the lock broken and we're out and we survive and it's fine. But that situation, I uh, came back to London and I realised was quite significant uh, in how it made me feel in my own marriage. So at three months pregnant, I packed three pairs of knickers, red, black and white, don't ask me what the significance was, and I left my husband. So that's my story. <laughs> don't get stuff in a hostage situation. Um, I know, I wish I could give you a happy ending. I should give you a, I should give you like, but it is a happy ending, I survived, I'm alive, yeah. Um, perhaps I should give you something, okay, so I'll, I'll talk about your Christmas, you, you hate Christmas, I'll give you a positive. Um, I love Christmas, when I came as an immigrant here, the, the story, some stories are just kind of finished. I know, perhaps I should give it a better ending. Um, so when I came here, um, to fit in, we used to try and take part in all the different festivals. And Christmas was the one thing I love, you hate. I know we talked about this before. I love Christmas. And I knew my moment of glory came when I was cast as Mary in the school nativity. Yes, a fucking lead. Yes, yes. But Joseph, um, he was being played by the school bully. And Joseph wasn't very happy about me being played Mary. So Joseph, who was played by Michelle, she said... Uh, you ain't playing Mary. And I said, why can't I play Mary? She goes, you can't play Mary, right? Because Mary, right, she was British. 
Who knew multiculturalism was so active in Bethlehem and those days? So anyway, that's a little bit more positive than, hey, you know. Um, those men didn't get caught, by the way, but they did... Um, did have uh, some other incidents locally to us, um, and they don't end well, so I'm not going to finish there. <laughs> but they were, anyway, I'm here, I'm here, that's it, isn't it, right? <laughs> we beat the terrorists. You don't need to do happy endings, it's a tragedy night, it's fine. Right, okay. So yes, so our next act was going to be Bridget Minimore, so I'm really sorry to say that she hasn't been able to make it today. Uh, so we're gonna have uh, a, a, a guy called Ian Barrett, who basically he's a regular storyteller at the Spark London night that happens here. Uh, and uh, he's gonna come in and fill up this space with a, his tale of, tragic, of a tragic holiday. So put your hands together, everyone, for Ian Barrett! Hi. Okay, tragic holiday. I first met my friend Darren probably in the late 90s. I just moved down to London and a lot of people were new. Uh, Darren was in sort of that circle of people I met and I never really felt I got to know him. Some shy people, especially if you don't know them, can seem a little distant and uninterested in you and sometimes a little aloof and I always got that impression from him and actually he was just really shy. And so even though I met him a lot of times, I didn't really get to know him. Uh, his probably aloofness was, was, wasn't helped by the fact he always looked so amazing as well. He'd always get men and women coming up and asking for lights and things and always got a lot of attention, which must have been weird for someone who was so shy. Um, so I got to know him more when we shared an artist studio um, up in Stoke Newington uh, that became available. And we shared the same space and he was a fantastically talented artist uh, drawing effortlessly uh, brilliant stuff that he could never finish. Uh, and, and I was there making up numbers in the studio um, and uh, we spent uh, a good eight weeks one summer and became really good friends after that. Uh, we used to go and hang out in galleries and see stuff and slag off famous artists because we were convinced we could do better. Uh, Darren probably could, I don't think I could. And um, uh, went on holidays together um, and became really good friends. He moved to Spain um, after a few years and then he came back with a few medical problems and after a couple of uh, tests down at uh, the hospital, um, they discovered he had terminal cancer, which was a big blow, obviously, to all of us. It was a shock that uh, no one had uh, anticipated. So um, at that point, you know, we didn't think he had long left, but uh, we all rallied round and tried to make uh, the best of what was a pretty tough situation and always tried to keep him busy and distracted. I don't know if that's good if you're in that situation, but he was played with phone calls and offers to go out and do things. And, um, uh, and, and again, that was sort of a, quite a, a special time that uh, we got to spend with him. And he lasted much longer than the hospital ever thought he would. Um, and after about a year, things were clearly getting a little worse. And we were trying to give him some really good sort of bucket list thing. And um, the problem with bucket list, those two words, list is fine, he used to make lots of lists. It's the bucket bit, the bucket's quite tricky because the bucket sort of means dying. And understandably, he wasn't quite too keen on that. 
Um, and, and whenever he, he was always deflect things when, when it came to sort of talking about his um, imminent demise. Um, and by that stage, you know, physically it was fairly obvious he, he was deteriorating. Um, and he always loved that Renaissance art and always wanted to go to Florence. So we started scheming to try and take him there. And we got some sort of people chipped in some funds and we worked out when we could go and it was going to be me and Darren going off to Florence. And every time he brought it up, he'd be reluctant to entertain the idea because it was that bucket thing again. Um, and so in the end, I had to lie to him and say that I, the, the only days I could get off were these certain uh, few days. Um, and it felt bad lying to him, but, you know, he was going to die anyway. He's not going to find out. Um, but, but that, uh, that white lie really worked, and uh, he suddenly thought, okay, I've got to do this. Um, and he was reluctant for, to go for too long for some reason. I don't know why that was. Um, so we had five days, the two of us, in Florence. And um, it, was, it was tricky. Um, my mum was on the phone saying, oh, it's awful. He might die out there. You know how mums are? It was like the worst thing. Uh, what happens if he dies? He's quite ill, you know, and then, and then you've got to get him back. And I was thinking, sod that, you know. I'll just get a flight home. Um, so anyway, we went, and he was quite fragile. He was on a ton of meds, which we obviously got through customs and things, and, um, uh, and, and just propping himself up from one day to the next was quite tricky. Um, and, but we saw a ton of art. He loved all that stuff, all that Roman Catholic stuff with the, the gold leaf and the red paint, and uh, starts to look pretty similar after you've seen one, to be honest, but after you've seen about ten churches, my God. Um, and we got into the, uh, one of those showpiece things in Florence, if you're familiar with that at all, um, and there were the Botticellis. Uh, with the birth of Venus, that's one of the star attractions. I think that's the Uffizi Gallery. And he had a really bad day. Uh, he was really struggling, laced himself up with lots of meds, and we got there slightly late, and, uh, and it was a struggle getting him round. And I remember I lost him somewhere. I don't know quite how I did that. I was generally looking after him, but obviously got distracted by something shiny. And, um, and, and I panicked, because I, uh, I was wandering around all these quite packed galleries, and he wasn't there. And then I burst into the Botticelli room, and there he was. He was sitting there, silently contemplating the birth of Venus that was surrounded by groups of tourists. Um, and that was one of those moments I just had to sort of sneak quietly to one side and shed a tear, because it was so wonderful that we'd got there at all, and that he'd been able to enjoy the, um, to be honest, the birth of Venus isn't that good. There's much better Botticelli's, believe me. Um, <laughs> And then we sat down together and we slagged off the Botticellis because that's what you do with art, isn't it? Um, and as, as the holiday came to an end, then we... It, it was more apparent that clearly this was his last holiday and he had sort of phrases he would say, this might be the last time I go abroad. And you couldn't really answer that because it was fairly obvious it was. Um, and um, but we had a really good couple of days towards the end when we just sort of hung out and were in some of the parks in Florence and the wine and the food's amazing um, and, then, and then came back. Um, I'll just take you forward a bit to the bit when he actually uh, was admitted to uh, a hospice and um, he was in there for a couple of weeks and at six o'clock one morning I got the phone call that was expected and yet when it happens it's horribly shocking and one of the nurses at the hospice said um, 
they don't say he's dead. They just say, you better get in now. Um, and so three of us dashed over to the hospice over in Hampstead. And I remember a sort of strange um, gallows humour in the car. We all sort of knew what was happening. And, and then as we headed over towards Hampstead, we just rose over a hill. And I remember there was um, uh, the sun uh, shining a light over towards the, uh, the hill that Hampstead is on. And we all went quiet as we sort of contemplated what was going to be in front of us. Um, we got there and he had died. Um, and my two friends were really upset. I mean, they should have been upset, that was fine. Um, and for some reason, uh, I couldn't quite perhaps deal with it. It was the first dead body I'd seen and uh, it was hard to accept my friend Darren was just lying there. And I sort of coped by distracting myself. There was loads of stuff to do. We hadn't really thought about funeral arrangements and um, uh, just getting the body taken away and anything else that would happen subsequent to the death. So uh, that was great because then I, I could talk to the nurses and there were people on hand who would give me help on, on what was likely to take place and forms to fill in. Um, and that stopped me thinking about the fact Darren had died. And I phoned loads of friends and said, you know, this has happened. If you want to come over to the hospice, we're all hanging out there. If you want to say your final goodbyes. And then I had nothing to do. Suddenly, there were no more friends to call. There, was no, there were no forms to fill in. And so I, um, I went outside and I thought, oh, I'll call my parents. Because my parents had known Darren. And um, I sat on a bench outside the hospice where me and Darren had sat uh, when I visited him and he'd smoked cigarettes there and um, we talked about what we're going to do next summer in some bizarre, surreal way. Um, and my dad answered the phone, which is unusual in my uh, family household. And, um, and, and he started off being uh, really happy. It was like, oh, great, my son's phoned to say hi. And I had to say, no, no, just um, hang on, I've got something to tell you. And I, I sort of said that uh, Darren had died. And that was the moment when all the emotion took over. And I just found myself sobbing on the phone to my dad, which, again, is unusual. Um, and I could hear my dad just go quiet. And I'm not quite sure how long I was crying. And he just said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then I cried some more. And then my dad, um, he's 80 now or so, and uh, probably more familiar with, with people passing and funerals and death. Um, I don't know if that gives you a wisdom or at least a perspective. Uh, and he said to me, your mum's not in. And I was just bewildered by this. It, it sort of threw me into these dual states of, uh, of, of the pain of Darren passing and the absurdity of what my dad had just said. <laughs> and, and rather than this sort of family bonding moment, he was wanting to escape. He was wanting to get away. And he was saying, oh, I think she's back later. Maybe you can call. I was like, okay, bye, Dad. And suddenly the, the phone went dead and I was left on the bench on my own, slightly stunned. Um, uh, a bit later, um, when I went to see my dad, actually it was only a couple of weeks later, he, he gave me a big hug, and then when we were together in the room, he just said, uh, that was really good, that moment we shared. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know what moment he's thinking of, but I think it was that one, and if that's, it, it's still special for me. Um, 
looking back on that, when I think of Darren, um, that, that holiday is still really precious. And strangely, it's got a lot of happy memories of the two of us hanging out and slagging off art uh, and just uh, being together, regardless of the bigger context. Um, tragic holiday. Brilliant. Okay. Right. So our next uh, performer is the last performer of this act. Uh, he's a regular. He's a regular uh, per person who performs with us, which I guess is the same word as performer. But I didn't want to repeat it. But now I've done that. Well, my style, my my hosting style is awkward. If you hadn't guessed, um, sometimes it takes people a while to get used to that. But I'm okay with it. So hopefully you will be too. Um, but yes, uh, his new sh his new comedy show, Hey Guys, will be at this year's Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Uh, he is really great. Uh, which I, I like the fact I like I like the fact that I'm a performer and I hate it when people build me up. So uh, I love to build people up. He's really great. He's brilliant. He's the best. Put your hands together, everybody, for Jaws Norris. Thanks, everyone. Hey guys. Okay, not a lot of Jaws Norris fans in. Okay, no worries. How you all doing? You all all right? Um, you all been on holiday? Yeah. You all giving it a go? Yeah. It's good, isn't it? It's good, isn't it? I've been, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this holiday. I went on to Cambodia last year uh, and how much it changed me. And I think in many ways that was my Vietnam. Um, and what I've, that's the best joke of the show yet. <laughs> my, my show, not this one we're watching now, but certainly the best thing I've ever written. Um, it's good, isn't it? You'll get it. Cambodia's next to Vietnam, isn't it? Okay, no. I, um, I went to visit a friend of mine. Anyone? Who's got a friend? Who's had a friend? <laughs> Giving it a go? It's good, isn't it? It's good. I went to visit a friend of mine called Emily, who moved out to Vietnam two years ago. Good friend. Who's had a good friend? <laughs> Giving it a go? It's good, isn't it? Um, I uh, kind of friend who, um, if the two of you were on a boat together, and it was sinking, and there was only one life belt, I mean this, but God, you'd miss her. You'd really miss her. Um, you would, you would, you would. But you'd be around and you could talk about it. Um, I went out there. Has anybody ever been to Cambodia? Yes. Have you? Who is that? This gentleman here. What's your name, son? <laughs> sir. Sorry, sir. So, yeah, we'll call a spade a spade. Sir. Call you sir. What's that? Uh, you went to Cambodia? Yes, last year as well. Really? When were you there? I remember you. No, I'm just joking. Oh, hey, mate. Well, um, what did you learn? Did you le I learned a lot. Did you learn anything? Did you learn? Uh, yeah, I was only there for about two days. By Texaco Towers, top heavy, isn't it? We'll talk about this later. Um, did you learn how to pronounce Phnom Penh? Try it again. Try it again. The clues, the clues in the question. Did you learn how to pronounce Phnom Penh? Give it a go. You're a natural. Um, but I'll, I'll explain. There's three stages of thinking you know how to pronounce Phnom Penh. The first is that you say Phnom Penh, which is wrong. And then there's this weird middle stage where you're sort of white and middle class and want to look like you know something. So you go around saying the PH is silent. That's wrong as well. It's not. And then there's Phnom Penh, which is what it is. But if you ever need a tip on how to pronounce Phnom Penh, what you do is... Uh, you know that rim shot sound effect you get whenever anyone tells a shit joke? That that thing. Imagine somebody doing that on a rubber drum kit. That's how you pronounce Phnom Penh. That's how you do it. It's like that. And that joke never goes down as well here as it did in Phnom Penh, annoyingly. But there we go. 
I don't know, seriously, told that in Phnom Penh, and Emily went, that is wonderful. <laughs> now let's go to Toolsleng Genocide Museum for more fun. Um, horrible place, horrible place. Did you go to Toolsleng Genocide Museum? It's horrid, isn't it? You forget that a skull is a head. Anyway, um, you know, you do, <laughs> you do. You look at a skull and you're like, that's a spooky object. And then the penny drops and you go, oh, that's someone's head. Anyway, um, I got thrown out for smiling. That's by the by. But I saw someone I knew. Bumped into someone I knew in Toolsleng Genocide Museum. Gave her a big smile and they said, get out, you're smiling. Funny old world. Um, so I, oh, did you go snorkeling? You didn't go snorkeling. You gotta try snorkeling, mate. It's like swimming, but live. Seriously. I can't recommend it highly enough. I'll bear that in mind. Yeah, it's, you can see everything. You can see all the details on all the fish. It's like they're there, <laughs> seriously. It's as if they're there, Amazing. right in front of you. You could touch them. You don't, they're too quick, but you try. Anyway, uh, I was swimming along, past all these little clownfish and all that, and suddenly, out of the blue, great white shark. I know, I know, that's what, that's what I said. Um, great white shark at the bottom of this coral reef. And I thought, what the hell do I do about this? And then he clocked me out the corner of his eye, this shark. He just went, who's that? Like that. And then he went, you'll move on if you know what's good for you, mate. You'll move on. And I went, yeah. And I'm moving off. And then he goes, hey, you didn't see nothing, all right? You didn't see nothing. Uh, and I went... Swam off, and apparently later that afternoon he <laughs> robbed a bank. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's my second favourite thing I've ever written. <laughs> that. Not the best, nor even the second best, but my second favourite. <laughs> Lot of support for it in the room today. Good, good. Uh, the thing I want to talk about is one specific um, conversation I had. I, the thing with me is, right, the reason why these sorts of nights are useful is that there's a lot of, as a comedian, there's a lot of stuff you want to talk about that you can't because of the kind of person you are. Like, it looks like you're being sarcastic. It's like, it's like a cartoon character started, talking, started telling you he's anxious. Like, if Bungle from Rainbow, who remembers Bungle from Rainbow? If Bungle turned around and told you he had a big tax bill coming up and he was really worried about it, you'd go, shut up, mate, you're Bungle. <laughs> you'll think of something, you'll be all right. That's how I feel feel like Bungle with a tax bill. You know, you can't talk about it. And I look like Warwick Davis, but without the USP. It's hard. It's a hard life. Um, so, but, uh, specifically, don't I, though? Don't I? Warwick Davis, but, but this tall. Who wants Warwick Davis at this height? Nobody. Nobody's buying. Um, you know, it oh, doesn't matter. Uh, but I, 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 was, I was once sacked by him. Anyway, uh, so... <laughs> Another, another story for another time. He came out on stage and went, you're fired. And I thought it was a joke. And then the producer came over and went, no, you are fired. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. No, but the thing is, the thing with me is, I, uh, my mum's gone, gone missing. My mum's vanished. She's gone. Nobody knows where she is. <sighs> Middle of nowhere, gone. I know where she is. She's in Wales. She's in Wales. She's moved to Wales. But I'm not visiting, you know. Too far away to visit. Who's with me? Long way, in it. But then my friend moved to Vietnam and I was like, oh no, I will go there. I won't go to Wales to visit my mum, but I'll go to Vietnam to visit my friend. If you're going to visit someone, you want it to be less than an hour or the length of a long haul flight, <laughs> like one or the other. You want it to be convenient or an adventure. So I went to, I went to Vietnam and, um, and here's the thing. 
I decided the best way to try and talk about stuff that I couldn't really explain is uh, cartoons. So I decided I was going to do a cartoon where I'm a little pig in a trench coat. So imagine it. I was going to do this cartoon where this little pig on a trench coat, on a trench coat, in a trench coat, is sat on a beach in Korong Samloem in the middle of the night, in the middle of a thunderstorm, and he's having a little cry. Because why not? You're on holiday. Do what you like. He's having a little cry. And then his friend comes over, Emily. She's a pig as well. They're all pigs in this cartoon. Everyone's a pig. She comes over and goes, what's wrong? And he goes, I've never told anybody this before, but I wish I was a little ball of light. Just a little floating ball of light. I'd be able to get everything done, and I'd never get sad. And he said, she said, I don't understand. And he said, she said, what's, what's made you feel this way? And he said, no, you've missed the point. She said, okay, well, how can we make you to feel better? He says, no, you've missed the point. I'm not talking about causes or resolutions, but I feel this way, and I'm trying to express it. And he says, the, uh, the common thread of my life, if there's been one, is that I've consistently sought out opportunities to be on my own so that I can imagine things in the hope that I'll find some way of expressing this space in the center of my head, this what is it, the what is it right in the middle, trying to find a way of saying that. And she goes, I don't understand. And he goes, that's all right. And then they go and swim in the sea for a bit. And there's bioluminescence and all. And they're in the middle of a thunderstorm. And for a couple of minutes, they just exist. And then he goes, now nah, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I was going to make that cartoon, but then I realized I'd have to draw about 30 panels to make that. And it's, I just don't have the time. Don't have the time. It'd be lovely to express yourself, but who has the time? But who has the time? Who has the time? Have you, have, anybody read Vonnegut? Yeah. He's good, isn't he? I discovered Vonnegut on holiday because the next day she was reading Breakfast of Champions and she read the exact passage where he says exactly the same thing as that. You know that bit where he says at the core of every human being is a little ball of light? I said that the day before Vonnegut did. I mean, he wrote it in 79, but like, I didn't know that. So me and Vonnegut are like that now. Great guy. Have you all read Cat's Cradle? Who's read Sirens of Titan? Bloody hell. Good, isn't it? Just finished it. Well, um, I'd, so I had one more thing I was going to say about holidays. You'd learn a lot, don't you? What's the best thing you learned in Cambodia? They don't come out of trees. <laughs> They're built into the trees. They're built into the trees. But yeah, it's good, isn't it? Do you see any skulls? I did see some. Sad, isn't it? Sad. <laughs> but it's all right to have a sad ending, isn't it, Dave? Like you said, we love this. We love this. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about your priorities. I am actually going to Wales at the end of July. Just make sure she's all right. Check in. She's got a heart problem and she's losing it, so I really ought to. And I mean, I went around the world for the other one. Well, all the best. Joe's <laughs> Norris, everybody. Um, now I'm going to do the sort of sadmin section, I'm afraid, uh, where I sort of talk about what we're, what we're doing, what's coming up and stuff like that, because uh, it's a podcast and you need to tell people that sort of stuff. So you can follow uh, Stand Up Tragedy uh, on Twitter. We're at Stand Up For Tragedy. Uh, you can also make friends with the tragedy on Facebook. We like it when you, when you do that, but you can also like, like our page if you like. 
Um, the podcast is available on iTunes and anywhere else pretty much where podcasts go to hang out on the internet. We do live tragedy, but we also do other forms of tragedy uh, as much as we can. And we've got a blog where we represent written tragedy. At Edinburgh we're, this year, we're going to be doing an hour of tragedy every day, apart from Tuesdays at the Banshee Labyrinth from 7.30 till 8.30 from the 8th to the 30th of August. The run includes lots of exciting special editions, including guest hosts Jenny Pascoe, Keith Jarrett, and Samantha Mann. <laughs> Collaborations with other voices, spoken word cabaret, poetry goes pop, sketch comedy group, casual violence, and more. So we've got a really excellent lineup going all the way through the festival. Keep an eye out uh, on our Facebook and our website for more details. Uh, and on the Tuesdays, we're going to be producing some live recordings of my, my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted. We'll be doing live recordings of them on the Tuesdays. And as well as the main show, we're also producing two solo shows, uh, one from me uh, and one from uh, Radcliffe Royds. And we'll be previewing both of those at the Dog Star in Brixton on the 23rd of July. There we go. Sadly over. Give yourselves a round of applause for sitting through it. Well done. I like to front load a night with a lot of information that nobody really cares about to get you in the mood. This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton. <laughs>